0: Thanks, Alex, for reading that, and let me add my welcome to Dan's. It's um, great to have you here. We're continuing our series in uh, Acts as we look at God's mission to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. As we do that, and as we look at this, why don't we ask God to help us and help me as I preach. Let's bow our heads, and I'll lead us in a prayer. Father, thanks for your word. Thank you that your word is a living word, that through it, by your spirit, you speak to us today. Help us now, wherever we're coming from, whatever our starting point, that as we look at this together, we would hear your voice speaking to us and to our hearts, and we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, a popular theme that comes up a lot in um, works of fiction, um, and that seems to grip the popular imagination, is that of an age or an epoch coming in when all things are going to be made right, when justice is going to be um, done, when disease is going to be dealt with, when... You know, the wrongs in this world are going to be um, put to rights and we're going to enter a kind of golden age. You know, you see it in The Lord of the Rings. It occurs in lots of our favourite films. It's a popular theme. Not only in works of fiction, though, if you look at the sphere of politics and sociology, many, many political theorists and politicians over the years have revisited this theme as well. Think of Karl Marx and his promise that through uh, communism would be brought in a gold age of unique prosperity and advance for the human race. Or Thomas More's utopia. I mean, the very word utopia conjures up that kind of image, a golden age, when the wrongs of this world are going to be put right. So it's there in fiction, it's there in politics, it's there in sociology as well. But not only that, then you come to science and you take um, humanism or you take transhumanism today, and you hear the same promises. Transhumanists promising that if you... Um, harness scientific progress and um, integrate it properly with humanity um, through refinement of our genes and things like that, then you will enter a golden age, a golden age, a golden epoch, where again there will be unique human progress and the wrongs of this world are going to be dealt with. And then it's there in business as well. Facebook, 2016. Mark Zuckerberg talked about donating $3 billion to the cause of eradicating disease because, according to him, we are in an age where that is now possible. Now, why is it that as you look at all of those different spheres, fiction, politics, sociology, science, business, it's just so prevalent, this idea? And yet, if you think about it and reflect on history, this has been promised many, many, many times down the line in history. And at each stage, it has failed to deliver. And yet, it still holds currency With us, still holds sway with us. Why is that? Well, I think it's because implanted in us is this innate sense that this world is not all that it should be, not all that it could be, and we long for that to be true. And there's maybe a seed of a sense in there as well that we think one day it will be true. I mention that because if you look in our passage, the key verse in our passage is verse 24. And as you look down, you will see that this is talking about just such an age. Verse 24 of chapter 3 on page 1095. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. What days, you could be heard asking? Well, the days they're describing here are the days sometimes known in the Bible as the Messianic age. That means the age when God's king will come, and God's king will be so perfect, and the rule that he establishes will be so utterly transformative that the age will start to undo all of the wrongs in this world. And you're thinking, I wonder, can it be true? Well, we're going to look at this great miracle that happens in Acts chapter 3 to see how this is a sign, because like a sign, it points to this reality that this is the age we are in. We're going to see three points. First of all, that the age of the king is here. Then secondly, the age of the king is here because the king has suffered to save us. And finally, what we need to do in response, so repent and turn back to God. Let's look, firstly, at the age of the King is here. And we're gonna look, first of all, at the miracle that's performed in Acts chapter three. Because what the context that we're coming from is in Acts chapter two, as we've seen, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've heard the preaching of the apostles saying that we are now in a new age, an age which is after the historical events of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And as Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father in heaven, he sends his promised Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity, the other counselor, that is another person of the Trinity like Jesus, to be with us, to empower us, to continue the works and the mission of Jesus. We are now in the age of the Spirit. This is the age of the King in the Bible. And so we see in Acts chapter two, verse 43, this little and kind of tantalizing um, description in verse 43 of Acts chapter two. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And we're thinking, what signs? What wonders? Because they haven't done any yet. And then we get chapter 3. And here we get a typical, not the only one, not the only one recorded in Acts, certainly, and not all of them recorded in Acts are exhaustive, but certainly a typical healing that happens through Peter and the apostle John. And it's a sign, because like a sign, it's pointed to this messianic age. Let's look at the miracle. So Peter and John are going up to the temple. I wonder if you've had the experience of on your daily commute to work, you walk past maybe someone who's begging, um, someone who's there day by day. Uh, Maybe you've talked to them, maybe like many people you haven't talked to them. There's one such um, man who's just around about the old street tube stop. I often walk by him. We always exchange a look because we've chatted a number of times. He's always there begging. I know a fair bit about his life history and why he's there. And the troubles that he's going through. But he's there begging because he's got nothing else. This man in Acts chapter 3 is lame. He's in a worse situation than many beggars. He's been lame since birth. And he's always there at the temple gate. The gate that's called beautiful because it would be beautiful and gold. It would be one of the main entrances to the temple. And as people go up to worship, there is this, and I use it in the technical sense, pathetic. Literally worthy of our pathos, our feeling. This poor human being there, lame since birth. He's got nothing. He has to beg for a living just to survive. There he is. And so he asked Peter and John for some money. And then something remarkable happens. Look at verse 6. Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. No extended period of recuperation. No physio to bring back the strength to his limbs. Think of the muscle atrophy. These limbs had never been used. But this is the work of the creator God that suddenly a miracle happens and he is able to walk and not just walk, but leap, leap with joy. And the focus of it all is verse six, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now let me say a few things. First of all, to modern ears, I'm aware that as you read this, you know, if you're someone particularly who's not a Christian, you might be reading this and thinking, well, okay, I was interested about the age of um, the king, but now you started talking about miracles. I just can't believe that. I'm a modern person. We know that miracles doesn't happen. You know, maybe you've heard that science has disproved that, Pete. You know, miracles don't happen today. Can I say a few things to that? Firstly, please note that this is historical record. This is an eyewitness account. Luke says he carefully investigated the eyewitness sources, compiles them, and Acts was in wide circulation within a generation of when these events happened. Not only that, Acts was in wide circulation in Jerusalem where these events were claimed to be happening. Now, do you notice the details, the place, the people involved? No, this would be something you could verify, to use our language today. You could fact check it. It's certainly not written as myth. Myth is normally vague. This is very specific, very concrete. Secondly, if you've heard that rumor that whispers on the wind of our culture that science has disproved miracles, can I just politely put a pin in that particular balloon? Science, to be technical, deals with the natural world. Um, Miracles are, by definition, a supernatural event. Science cannot disprove or prove supernatural occurrences since it's outside of its scope. It's an overreach. It's a bit like claiming music has disproved poetry. The two are in mutually exclusive categories. They may overlap, but science cannot disprove the supernatural world. In fact, to make that statement is actually a faith claim since it can't be proven. And so you might want to ask, as you ask with all people who make faith claims, what's the reason for your faith? Is it reasonable or not? Science is, of course, very reasonable, except when it overreaches. So science has not disproved miracles. This is historical record. I put it to you, if God exists, he is more than able to reconstitute a person who's been lame since birth, since he created him in the first place. It's not quite as hard as creating someone, is it? So here we are. Notice the focus on the text. All the focus is not on the apostles. It could be, but it's not. They point away from themselves and they point to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. They do it in his name. And notice not just they do it in his name, but the title they use, Jesus Christ. That's not his surname, that's his title. Christ is Christos or Messiah. It means the anointed one, the king. This is saying Jesus the king in Nazareth. And then we also get in verse 13 a further title used for him. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, that's a title from Isaiah, referring again to God's king. His servant, we're told, will come. He will be a king and he will be a prophet. This great figure that fulfills all of the great promises of God in Isaiah, described as the servant. And then in verse 14, we get another title for him. He gets called the Holy and Righteous One. Excuse me. Again, a title in Isaiah, another one for the king. And then look down with me at verse 22. We're told Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Again, a prophecy about the great prophet king, God's anointed one who will come. Now, why all of these illusions? Because Luke is wanting us to see that this miracle, as wonderful as it is, points to a bigger, greater, more significant reality than even giving a lame person the ability to walk and jump for joy again. It points to the fact that we are in the age of the king. And what an age that will be. The prophets foretold it in the Old Testament. We had that reading from Isaiah 35. Because in that reading, we're told the lame will leap with joy. I love how in this passage Luke gets so excited that he kind of stumbles over his words. So look with me at verse 8. This man jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went into the temple with the temple courts, walking and jumping. It's like Luke says, do you get the point? He was jumping. The guy's walking for the first time. Wouldn't you test out the goods? Do they really work? I can jump. It's amazing. I'll do it again. I can jump. It's just unadulterated joy. It's like lambs on a spring morning. They, they're recently born. They want to try their limbs out. They jump for joy. Isaiah 35, the lame will leap with joy. Not only that, where does he go? It's interesting, he does not go to his family and say, friends, family, I can walk. He goes into the temple to praise God because he knows who has healed him. And this picks up on a prophecy in Jeremiah 31, verse eight, where the lame and the blind and the outcast will be gathered into God's temple. Here, this man is gathered in, in the age of the king. And lastly, we get a little bit later on these times of refreshment that are told in verse 19. And again, that's picking up on Isaiah chapter 58, verses 11 to 12, where we're told, The Lord will guide you always, he will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land, and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fails. Do you see? Peter, as he explains this image, explains this miracle, is saying, It's the age of the king, it's what's been prophesied. The lame will leap with joy. The lame will be gathered in. Times of refreshment are coming. He's saying, these are the times we live in. So rejoice. It's the age of the king. Well, let me just um, qualify a couple of things here. First of all, we need to grasp that this is not promising that there will be perfect restoration and healing now, right now. We are told in verse 21, if you look down, that heaven must receive Jesus until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago. In other words, we are in the age of the king, but the full restoration, the full righting of all the wrongs, the full healing of all diseases will happen when Jesus returns. We're in the age of the king, but the age of the king has not fully been fulfilled until Jesus returns. That is when every wrong will be put right. Secondly, notice that these are the signs and wonders, as verse 43 of chapter 2 says, of the apostles. So whilst it is true that every believer is given the gift of the Spirit, nonetheless the Spirit came particularly upon the apostles in power to verify the message they were preaching for a time. And so we need to be wary of two things. The first is we need to be wary of those who say, because we're in the age of the king, actually, if you just have enough faith, you will be healed. God can do anything. He's God, and he's a rich and gracious God. But there is no promise until Jesus returns that every wrong will be put right, that every disease will be healed. Some will be, but not all. So we need to be skeptical of those who claim they all will be now. Also, we need to be skeptical of those who doubt God and say none will happen now. No, no, God did it then. He's God. He can do it now. There are sometimes miraculous healings. Praise God. But they are not fully to be realized until the future. But can I just say, nonetheless, isn't this remarkable? What a comfort for this man, but also for us today to know we're in the age of the king. I don't know what you came here today expecting or how you came feeling, what you brought with you whether you at the moment, like a number of people in the church family, are dealing with disease and difficulty, maybe you've just had an unsettling diagnosis, maybe you've got some symptoms, and you're not sure what's going on, you're anxious, you're in the age of the king, you don't need to fear. Maybe you're dealing in your family with a bereavement. Maybe the bereavement happened a while ago, but it's still very real to you and death has still got its shadow over you. The shadow will be rolled back, we're in the age of the king. Maybe you are feeling some of the other difficulties we face, despondency, despair, depression. We're in the age of the king. Those things will be dealt with. Be comforted, be encouraged. I know it's hard now, but there is a day coming, verse 21, when Jesus will restore everything. And this miracle is just a picture. And don't you think your joy on that day will be just as great as this man's joy? So hold on, keep trusting him. We're in the age of the king. It is a remarkable thing. We're in the age of the king because the king has suffered to save us, our second point. That's the significance of the miracle, to see the age we're in. But the question it begs is, of course, how are we in this age? Well, look down with me at verse 18. This is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. In other words, this is how God brought it about. He brought this wonderful age about through the suffering of his great king, through his life, which was a life of suffering, through his death, which was a death of unimaginable suffering. As he suffered, so the age of the king was brought in. And look at the emphasis on how that death came about particularly. Look with me at verse 13, the earlier verses. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Do you see the emphasis? You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be released. You killed the author of life. In other words, that day when Jesus dies on the cross is at the same time the worst and most terrible day in human history and at the same time the best and most wonderful day in human history. It's the worst and most terrible day in human history because it shows us what the human heart is really capable of. When faced with utter moral purity unimaginable goodness with God himself the author and giver of all good things we find God such a threat to our independence we so hate the idea that everything has been given to us as a gift it so affronts our ego and our pride that we say no God I I don't want you in my life I want your gift sure but don't you have any claim on me and we say no we say no and we say no and we push and we push and we push until we find our voices joining in with the crowd and saying release the murderer but I won't have him he's a threat to me the murderer is no threat at all we disown him and you might be saying that's just over the top peter i mean look here peter is talking to the actual people who did this i'm not complicit with them And yet what's interesting in all of the gospel accounts is the gospel writers go to great pains to show us that this is exactly the behavior that's typical of human beings, and every human being would do were we there. And you're thinking, really? I'm not like that. I wouldn't murder the Son of God, the Holy One. I'm not like that. My friends, there's an illustration C.S. Lewis uses where he talks about if you want to discover the rats in the closet... What you don't do is you don't turn on the light of the basement and bang a few doors and shout down there and then go down and look for them. You'll never see them. What you do is you creep down there and then at the last minute turn on the lights and you see them scurrying for the shadows. So it is with the human heart. You want to see what your heart's really like? Don't give yourself all the warning and all the opportunity to prepare your hearts to brush it up, to present well. No, see you on a bad day. See what your heart's capable of then on a bad week. See in that moment when you're caught completely off guard, when you're blindsided, see how you respond then. See the moment of anger when you flare up. See the pride and the ego as it suddenly kicks in. Hear the narrative of your heart then, and then see what you're really like. And imagine that unchecked, and then you will see what you're really capable of. This is the most terrible day in human history because it reveals to us what we are really like. That faced with the Lord of glory, we say no, no, no until we're shouting crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Human nature is laid bare. And yet at the same time, it's the most wonderful moment in human history. Because in this moment, as we do our worst, God is shown to be at his best As Jesus dies on the cross, put there by us, he's taken the punishment we deserve so the age of the king can come in. Do you see how it works? We do evil, we reject him, and yet at that moment God is doing good. We do our worst, but at that moment God is doing his best. We kill Jesus, and at that very moment God is through Jesus bringing life into the world. Jesus suffers, and we can be healed. Jesus cries out in agony so we can know joy. God is that sovereign, that in control, that this is the greatest turnaround at that moment. When humanity is at its worst, God is at his best. Little wonder that Peter says the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has glorified his servant Jesus. Isn't he glorious that he can do this? As the song says, oh, the mystery of the cross, that he should suffer for the loss so that the fool might shame the wise and all the glory might go to Christ. So how should we respond? Repent and turn to him. That's the consistent cry of Peter and of Jesus Christ. Can I say this very carefully? It's really important that you see that the age of the king and benefiting from it is not automatic. It's not automatic. Though it is a free gift given by God, there's nothing you can do to earn it. You have to receive it. And to receive it, We're told very clearly how we receive it. Look at verse 19. Repent then and turn to God. Repent is to turn away from your wrongdoing, away from your rejection of Jesus Christ and to turn to God, turn back to him. It is both a one-time act when you first receive Christ and it is an ongoing dynamic in the life of those who follow Christ. Every day we turn away from our sin. We turn back to God. Every moment we say no to rejecting him and we turn to him. And that is how we come to benefit from the age of the king. Repent and be baptized. Notice the consistency in the message of Peter. Look over the page at Acts chapter 2 verse 38 where he's preaching his first sermon. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Notice how Peter picks this up from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. When Jesus comes on the scene, he says, the time is up. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and be baptized. Repent and believe. It's the consistent message. Let me put it like this. A gospel without, no, without any repentance is no gospel at all. And I want us to be really clear on that because often it's forgotten today. But the reason that repentance is so important is because every encouragement is given to us to do it. Look at verse 19. What happens as you repent? Times of refreshing come from the Lord. It's a great picture, times of refreshing. It comes back to that image we saw in Isaiah 58, a desert. The sun is beating down. It's dry. It's arid. you Mouth, you know, your tongue sticks to the roof of your mouth because it's so dry. You're thirsting. You're longing for something to quench your thirst. And when all hope seems lost, when there's no shade and the sun is at its hottest, at that moment, suddenly, the clouds break and rain starts to fall and it's cool and it's refreshing. And then suddenly the rivers start to flow and you're able to scoop up crystal clear water. Have you had one of those moments where on the hottest day, you're suddenly offered the most refreshing drink? And as you drink it and it goes down, it points to a deeper reality that you long for in your life of spiritual refreshment. This is what this is talking about. The refreshment of knowing your sins are forgiven. Oh, there's no greater refreshment. In the film, the BFG, there's a nightmare that the BFG tells people to beware of. He says it's called the troggle humper dream. And in the dream, or in the nightmare, he says, you look at what you've done and there is no forgiveness. He says, there's no worse nightmare to look at what you've done, and there is no forgiveness. Can I say there may be many people here today who are living that nightmare? You present well, of course. You arrive in a social context. You talk to people no one knows, but you know that guilt, that shame you feel for something you've done in the past, maybe for a number of things you've done, and you don't know forgiveness for it. And it it plagues you when your head hits the pillow. It causes you sleepless nights. And yet here on offer through the death of Jesus Christ is forgiveness for all you've ever done because Jesus saw you at your worst and at your worst he forgave you. And therefore you fear nothing. To know the conscience washed clean, there is no greater gift arguably. To see the dream of knowing everything you've done laid bare and at that moment it to be forgiven, washed, the cleansing. The refreshment, the sense of spiritual vitality it gives you is utterly extraordinary. And in Isaiah 58, from that refreshment comes new life because refreshment leads to revitalization. Here's how it works. When you know that the worst you've ever done has been forgiven, it starts to change you from the inside out. Because when someone confronts you about something you do wrong, rather than the normal response of defensiveness, how dare you speak to me that way, deflection, Lie, no, I didn't do that, they're exaggerating, all the human defensiveness that we use to push things away, we're able to say, oh, you know what, that sounds just like the type of thing I would do, I'm really sorry, can you help me to change? How refreshing is that in community, when people respond that way, and you bring in a dynamic of change into your life, and into the community, such that the shoots of growth start to come forth in your life, don't you want that? Don't you loathe the defensiveness, don't you want to see change? Repent and turn back to God. That's the dynamic of change in your life. And oh, what joy there is. But just as great as the joy is the sternness of the warnings that Jesus also issues. Look at verse 23. Anyone who does not listen to Jesus will be completely cut off from their people. The joy and blessings for following Jesus are matched by the sorrow of the judgment if we continue to reject him. And can I say that Jesus is very plain on this. There is no middle ground. There's no amnesty. There is only you're for him or you're against him. You're accepting the gift of the king and you're living in the age of the king and under the blessings of the king or you're standing against the king. Look, we long are here in spite to give you the opportunity to explore it, but we need to be plain with you. God wants to bless us. He wants to refresh us. But he also warns us about the consequences if we continue to reject him. Well, there we are. The age of the king... We're in it because of the suffering of the king. So repent and believe. Let me just apply it in a couple of ways. First of all, notice the centrality of repentance. When Martin Luther at the um, Reformation in the 1500s nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg church, the first one he nailed, or the first one in the list of the theses he nailed, was this All of life is repentance. I alluded to it earlier, but there are many churches today that will preach a gospel of Jesus being forgiving and being your savior, but they will not call you to repent. And in the community, there will be no dynamic of people calling you out on sin. Can I say again, a gospel without repentance is no gospel at all. Or to put it another way, you cannot have Jesus as your savior and his joyous blessings if you do not follow Jesus as your Lord and obey his commands. The one without the other is a half gospel. It is no gospel at all. Now, of course, we need to be careful, we need to be patient, we need to be authentic, we need to not be heavy-handed in how we shepherd, but you need to repent. Maybe right now you know there are some particular sins, and maybe some friends have been trying to call you out on them, and you've been saying it's none of your business, you've been playing out to the individualism of the age. It is their business. You need them to call you out on it, lovingly, of course, patiently and prayerfully. But a gospel with no repentance is no gospel at all. All of life is repentance. Is that a dynamic in your life? Bring your sin into the light. Share it with a confidant and seek change of forgiveness. The centrality of repentance. Lastly, the gospel of Jesus. Do you see what the gospel is all about? Jesus Christ. Peter says the miracle points to him. Peter says the whole point of this age is to glorify him Peter says the Spirit is sent to exalt Jesus and sends out on mission for Jesus. It's all about him. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 28, we proclaim him. In other words, Christianity is not primarily a philosophy or a dogma or a doctrine or a theological system. It's a person, the person, the king, Jesus Christ, the holy and righteous one. He should be the heart of your faith. Every now and then you need to take your car in to get the wheel alignment checked, and if you don't do that, the wheels wobble and you know steering the car off on a wrong course. Can I suggest that you might need, like we all do, to realign your life on Jesus Christ? Where have you lost that center point? Do you feel like your life is wobbling, like you're veering a little bit? Come back to him. It's all about him. Not only should he be the heart of our faith, but he should be the heart of our message. We want to introduce people to Jesus. That's what the week on the green is all about. It's wonderful to serve the community, but we serve the community so we show them Christ's likeness and we therefore want to introduce them to Christ as well. Every event that week is structured to doing that in a compelling, contextualized, gospel-centered, gracious and loving way. The gospel of jazz will show us how he is at the center of the movement of jazz and blues. The design your life will show how living a life according to his principles leads to fulfillment and joy. The Truth in the Fake News Age event will show how he is the way, the truth, and the life. The film event will give opportunities to talk about him some more. And then the Festival on the Green will help people to see that he is at the center of this community and to come in on the Open Church Sunday and to meet him. It's all about him. So we must pray that he would be glorified through that week as well, as we invite and we do our part. Let me lead us in a prayer that we do that. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this wonderful miracle and for what it points to that great reality that this is all done in the name of jesus christ of nazareth the king in whose age we live the one day, the one who will one day put all things right and restore everything as has been promised through the prophets help us to live for him and wherever we are help us to engage with him and we ask it for jesus sake amen